This is Capital Weekly editor Rich Eisen, and I am joined as always by my partner in crime, Tim Foster. Tim, how are you doing today? I'm well, Rich. Thanks. Great. Well, there's an old saying that's been attributed to Mark Twain. I, I a lot of those are not true, but let's just say this one is that says, you know, in California, whiskey is for sipping and water is for fighting over. It's been that way for a long, long time here in California, and uh, you know, it's probably going to be that way for a long, long time to come. Uh, and keeping track of everything that goes on in the world of water is a challenge, but we're fortunate because we have uh, folks like the Water Education Foundation. And today, our guest is Jen Bowles, the executive director of the Water Education Foundation, who's here to bring us up to date on where where we're at after last year's big wet winter and et cetera, et cetera. Jen, we're so thrilled to have you here. How are you doing today? We're doing great today, Rich and Tim. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, WEF, I say WEF because as a reporter, that's, of course, we always called it the Water Education Foundation was WEF. Uh, it's always been such a great source of information for whether it's Aquafornia, whatever else, all the, the various conferences and seminars you guys put on. Uh, give me, I guess, the quick 411 on on how how are we feeling about California's water situation right now? Well, we have we still have a lot and uh, we're looking at a year coming up where we may have another El Nino it's looking like and potentially more uh snowmelt than perhaps we want. So that's you know following quite the drought that we had. So it's the extreme weather that we're having that we've been having in the last decade or so. And, you know, I know um, the El Nino thing always kind of throws me off a little bit because I think most of us have a an idea what an El Nino is, but we don't really know. What are we talking about when we're talking about having an El Nino year? We're having a more wet year with El Nino, generally speaking, and it depends where you live and what that means for you. It could be more rain. It could be more snow. Uh, you know, there's there's so much in the atmosphere that creates so many different factors for us in California. What we really want is a good snow year. We want that good snow year. So because that is that is our money in the bank, so to speak, in terms of water, because the more snow that falls on the Sierra Nevada, the more water supply we're going to have when we need it later on in the late spring, early summer uh, as it melts. And that's Generally, how our system has been created is uh, of reservoirs and everything that we have here in California. We are very well plumbed in California, for better or worse, but it's based on this older kind of system where the snow will melt slowly and go into reservoirs. We saw very much what happened this year is we had too much snow, too much rain, and we had flooding. And so there's a lot of projects and things going on right now to figure out how can we take advantage, how can we manage that flooding system a little bit better. And you mentioned the reservoirs. That's always a big issue of concern. How are we on reservoirs? Because I know in the last three to five years, you, you go across Oroville or Shasta or anything, and it's just heartbreaking to see how low everything is. How are we feeling about 
reservoir yeah. capacity right now. Yeah. Well, I haven't checked the levels today. However, um, they, I mean, all of our reservoirs did really well this year in California. I have to make that clear because the ones along the Colorado River, while they've rebounded slightly, uh, not as good on the Colorado River system. And in California, we always have to remember how much rely on the Colorado River as well. That's kind of our third prong water supply there. But uh, getting back to California, um, the reservoirs are uh, in good shape. But this is the time of year where they're being drawn down because the water is being used, but also because we need to make room for those next series of storms and uh, to come in. So we launched today our Northern California water tour. We do a series of water tours every year. And uh, just today, we have our three-day tour going up to Oroville, which is the anchor of the state water project. And they'll also take in Shasta, which is the anchor of the Central Valley project, which is the federally run water system here in California. You know, you mentioned the Colorado. That is always another source of a lot of uh, back and forth. And, you know, and, and because it's not just us, there are, you know, multiple states are part of the Colorado River Pack. So, uh, can you bring me up to speed? Where where are we at with the latest on the Colorado River and, and access and supply there? So you mentioned states and it's seven states altogether, but it's also uh, two countries. So we've got Mexico involved as well. And then you have to throw in 30 tribal nations uh, within the Colorado River Basin. And that's a big part of, of the question right now. And a lot of focus is on uh, the 2026 guidelines, operating guidelines for the Colorado River, they're being looked at, they're going to have to be updated. And people are looking at how can we bring tribes more into the conversation? How can we do this? How can we do that? So there's a, the Colorado River is a really interesting animal, so to speak. I mean, because you have all these states, you have all these parties. And, uh, you know, I think they're trying to be more equitable in terms of how water gets to where it needs to be. Yeah, the Colorado River issue, like I say, but being a multi-state, the only thing I've ever seen comparable is the Great Lakes states and all the uh, around, you know, access to the Great Lakes. But, you know, I was just in Vegas. And if you're in ever around Vegas or San Diego, Los Angeles, boy, you know, you realize how critical access to that water supply really is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's yeah, very much so. And Las Vegas, I have to say, is is doing a lot of really interesting conservation projects, and they're sort of leading the way, I would say, in just the way that they're using recycled water, how they're not allowing watering. Um, they're they're just they're really become a model for how to use water in an arid Southwest city. It's really true, and we were out a lot in the suburbs, and you do not see lawns anywhere i mean they really it reminded me more of albuquerque or, or or santa fe or some of the other places i've been in the southwest and i don't know if it's always been like maybe i wasn't paying attention in the past <laughs> but it really does look i mean i don't see anyone taking advantage of uh water access i won't say the same about la i know la is doing better than it's done in the past but you know it's not vegas vegas has really uh i think taken conservation to heart yeah, they really have. And, and you know, uh, our governor here in California just uh, signed the bill to ban the use of drinking water to irrigate what is purely decorative grass that no one uses, right? So that got signed too, and that'll be super interesting to see how that plays out. You transitioned for me. I love that. Thank you so much. <laughs> that was a beautiful transition that I was already thinking in my head. 
because Anytime. I mean, you tell Jen was a you could tell Jen was a journalist in a past life. Absolutely, yes. she knows she knows exactly <laughs> how how a reporter's brain works. Because I, I I definitely wanted to touch on legislation this year, and you know not to get down into the weeds on anything, but just uh, you know we we've seen things in the budget that dealt with the aquifer and, and recharging aquifers, uh, mm-hmm. other things like you mentioned. So what what are some of the things we saw come out of uh, the Capitol this year that are that you think are really important for people to be paying attention to? Right. Yeah. And we are having a panel looking at the not just legislative, but also just some policy changes that are coming up um, at our water summit next week, uh, which is our annual conference. But one of the big ones is the water rights oversight bill. Um, That was, you know, people have been trying to reform, change, modernize water rights in California for a long, long time. And we finally, finally had a bill signed in uh, California that really gives the uh, state water board the opportunity to look at senior water rights and do anything to change them or modify them. So determine whether they're valid. I mean, you know, the, most of them were were granted, you know, over a century ago, right? So, um, so they'll have that opportunity to do that. It was one of three water rights bills. It's the one that got passed. Uh, so. That'll be interesting to watch how what happens with that, um, because we always have these issues with water rights, especially during a drought, when you have, you know, just so many people holding senior water rights and getting most of the water when, you know, everybody else needs it too. Uh, I mean, we've managed through it just fine, but there's always those kinds of complaints that come up during a drought. We only have so much to go around. So there's that, the water rights oversight bill. Um, we do have the something interesting from the water board. They s- sent out their draft plan for sending treated wastewater directly to drinking water supplies for the first time. So previously, Don Howard loved to call that toilet to tap, and they would hate <laughs> for you to call it that. <laughs> but just just as just to, to explain the step back a little bit, we've been doing that for a long time in certain parts of California. For instance, in Orange County, they've been using wastewater, treated wastewater, but but in order to use it and put it into taps, they've had to first let it go into an aquifer and sort of do a cleansing as it goes down and then pump it up or something like that. Now, the draft plan, and I assume it will be going forward, uh, is to be able to highly, highly treat this water and put it directly into a reservoir or some other kind of water drinking system. So that's new and it's a kind of a big deal, I think. I have to say that one of the things about that particular process is that people ignore the fact that there's only so much water on the entire earth. Right. So you're drinking toilet water and you have your whole life. It's just been, you know, it's just gone through the process more, more naturally. And so it's something that really freaks people out. But the reality is it's all toilet to tap and vice versa. You know, it's all. Yeah, it's it's all the water, so cycle, water, right? When you think about it. So um, I, and personally, I would have no problem drinking it. It's going to be high, it's highly treated water. Um, so people have been waiting for this recycled uh, kind of this draft plan to come out. Metropolitan Water District in Southern California has a big pilot project out. A lot of people have pilot projects on this, but they can't take them to full fruition until they have the final report from the state water board. So, so that's really interesting. The one I mentioned about 
you know, the bill that he signed to ban uh, the use of drinking water for irrigating purely decorative grass uh, that no one uses. So it's not going to, um, that's not going to be parks. It's not going to be certain things, but, um, you know, places like medians. There are some cities in Southern California, and especially if you go down to a place like um, Palm Desert, you'll see that their medians uh, in the roadways are just all very drought tolerant plants and, and they're quite beautiful. I think um, Palm Desert is kind of a model for how you can have that, you can still have a beautiful median and not use a lot of water. So it's it's been really, really interesting. And I think there's there's another thing that's coming down the pipeline, but it was actually signed by previous Governor Brown, where more than 400 cities and suppliers are going to have to start meeting state mandated state mandated targets on water use. So, and they may have to cut consumption up to about 20% or more. So, you know, those things come out when we're having a strong water year sometimes or a flood year and people are like, why are we doing this? Why are we doing this? But, you know, I mean, water is our most critical natural resource and no one can live without it. No one or no things. So, you know, we always have to keep in mind, like Tim was saying earlier, that there's only so much water and um, we have to get in the mindset of being, of conserving it, no matter if it's a flood year or a drought year or what have you. Well, I know in Sacramento, historically, the idea was that we would have so much water, we would need to get rid of it because Sacramento historically would flood, you know, every every right. year, every other year. I mean, we're in the middle of a floodplain. And so when our water systems were first created in the 1800s, uh, the idea was just to get rid of this water as fast as possible. Obviously, that's not where we are anymore, but I think we're still dealing with the vestiges of that. And now, you know, now we're actually trying to restrain some of the water from going away. And it's just a very different approach. Well, and also to kind of reactivate our floodplains. So especially when we have floods, you know, a river just naturally wants to spread out, right? And so there are a lot of projects underway. There, uh, we're actually visiting some of them on our tour uh, this week, where they've kind of broken down the levees and created places for the water to spread out. And so that does two things. It allows the river to do sort of what it naturally would do. And it also allows also for some groundwater recharge, right? Because our, our groundwater basins are overdrafted, overpumped in a lot of areas, especially in the Central Valley. And you're actually going to be looking at the Klamath Dam removal as part of your, your conference, right? Yeah, I mean, that's the nation's largest kind of dam removal project. We like to say project because there's four dams that are coming down. And these are really more like power dams, smaller. They're not the dams like you think of, like Oroville or Shasta. They're smaller dams, but they're they're decent in size. I think one's over 100, 100 feet tall. But that's a big thing that's coming, uh, that's happening now, happening this summer. It's happening. And Klamath is, is right. It straddles California and Oregon, but it's a really, really interesting water region because you have a lot of tribes, you have a lot of farming, you have a lot of just everything. And these were power dams, right? Uh, there's a lot to generate power. And in some cases, you know, people are not wanting to, uh, they want to knock down the dams because they're too expensive to retrofit or bring up to code. You know, some of them are super old by at this point. They're maybe not earthquake safe. 
uh, or anything. So some, some of these dams are coming down for that reason. Some um, are coming down. I mean, the benefit will be to restore salmon runs, uh, you know, runs of endangered salmon, um, steelhead trout, what have you. We had we had California's largest dam removal on the Carmel River a few years ago, uh, a few years back, uh, the San Clemente Dam, and that was for the steelhead. That was to help the steelhead. So, you know, we're not, it's not like we're going to see Oroville or Shasta or anything ever come down, most likely. <laughs> but these dams that are become sort of obsolete or too expensive to fix are coming down. So there's a lot of science going on to kind of look at what's going to happen in the Klamath River Basin in terms of the salmon. Are they going to come back? Are they going to, is nature going to come back, you know, like it was before? So it's been some really, some really interesting stuff. And our journalism team actually did a uh, in-depth look at the Klamath Dam in terms of the science. Um, we published that story on our website, watereducation.org, if anyone wants to check it out. Um, so it's it's really super interesting what's happening there. Speaking of things that were what that are like dams that are good but are changing, I know there has been a move in the recent years thinking of water conservation toward artificial turf lines, uh, you know, mostly toward you know less more more drought tolerant plants that kind of thing. But people who want a line strong encouragement toward having artificial turf that has become problematic too because of the chemicals and the composition of what goes into making artificial turf it was a little confusing this year with uh with what the governor did here because he vetoed a brown era bill that barred cities from banning artificial turf but then he also failed he also banned a bill that would have uh, banned certain chemicals and in these lawns. This is all about water. So what can you tell us about all this? Well, that all uh, PFAS, those are the forever chemicals, right? That, um, and, and microplastics are also an issue, right? In, um, in our water supply now, they're kind of the emerging chemicals that are being found in our, our water supplies. So this bill, so it was it was confusing, and we just it was the top of our scroll this morning uh, from our story from CalMatters today about what the governor did in terms of of what did he actually sign. So he's from what we can tell, it, he signed the bill that allows the cities to ban artificial turfs because they contain forever chemicals and and microplastics that, if you think about it, they're on your lawn, the, these fake grasses with the chemicals. And if it rains, it's going to hit that and it can throw it, you know, it can run into the street. It can become runoff. Um, it's just not a good thing. And it could enter water supplies, drinking water supplies that way as well. So it's a little confusing what exactly happened yesterday. <laughs> We're still trying to get our arms around it as well. But it was really also health concerns but Rachel Becker wrote the story today out of Cal Matters, and we had a long discussion. We do have a water news feed every morning, so our journalism team gets together and decides what are what is the most important stories of the day. And this was the important story, but we actually had to wrestle with it a little bit because it, it was a little unclear exactly what they were saying. So it was a little bit of the Jerry Brown thing. If we're going to stay on water, paddle a little to the left, paddle a little to the right, and you end up somewhere in the middle. It seems like in in this year in particular, the, the governor has definitely, uh, he's got his river kayak pointed clearly down the middle of the stream, right? 
And I know <laughs> how hard those things are to maneuver from personal experience. So I guess I'll give him credit for that. But that seems to be what he's doing. He's 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 splitting the baby. I, I don't know. Are there any other analogies or cliches, Tim, that I've missed here? But Well, you know, I have to say, if we're talking about Jerry Brown and water, we have to talk about the tunnel, not tunnels anymore, the tunnel. You know, I haven't really heard that much about the tunnel. Uh, if you drive down into the Delta, you will still see a ton of signs. You'll see stop the stop the tunnels. Where are we on that? What's what's going on with that? Yeah, you know, are, are you asking me? Is <laughs> Rich going to answer that? <laughs> because I will tell you. So it was tunnels under Governor Brown. It is a tunnel under Newsom, right? And um, we don't see a lot of coverage on the tunnel thing. Uh, as far as I know, it's still ongoing. It's still moving forward. Um, it did stop in its tracks uh, a few years back when they couldn't get enough money, enough pe people to say enough water districts, like especially in Southern California, to say, yes, we're going to help fund this. Uh, so it sort of stalled at that point. It was really close, but it stalled. So then they came up with the one tunnel plan. And it is one of the most controversial things in California. So, you know, we're an impartial nonprofit. So we kind of just say, well, here's what these people are saying. And here's what these people say. And for better or worse, it, it's still out there. It's moving along. I occasionally see some things about it here and there. But um, I, I guess I would assume the finance, uh, the financial aspect is still out there. The question of how that's going to be funded. Yeah, I think that's everybody's question is, OK, who, who's going to pay for it? How is it going to work? Yeah. You know, what, are, what, what are the easements going to look like? I mean, there's a million questions about that. I, I feel like, you know, I was a kid, mostly a kid when Jerry Brown was in his first term. And I was a much older person when he finished his last term. And we've been fighting about these damn tunnels the entire time. And so what's really interesting today, we actually had an earthquake out. in the Delta this morning, right? Did you guys feel it for yes. point two? Heard about and it. um in the Delta. And that's one of the things that the proponents of the tunnel will say. We don't want an earthquake to knock down one of those levees and flood everything, allow the Pacific Ocean to flood into the Delta and bring all that salt content to the clean river water from the Sacramento River and the San Joaquin River. So that's always been a big argument. Um, those levees are fragile. They're not very strong. They decay after years and years. So um, so, so that's just what, it's interesting coincidence today that we had an earthquake there. Well, and it is interesting, uh, you know, I love the Delta. I love driving around and, and yeah. out the little towns and all that stuff. And it's interesting because all the signs here restore the Delta, but I actually think they don't want the Delta restored because if you restored, quote unquote, restore the Delta, that would mean eliminating all those levees because that was a floodplain, what, a hundred mile and someplace hundred mile wide floodplain that was a brackish water mixture of salt and fresh water. And I don't know that there's anybody really pushing. There's probably some environmentalists somewhere hoping we'll go back to that. But I don't know that there's many people live out there that want to see us really restore the Delta to where it was 200 years ago. It's more like they want to preserve the Delta more or less as it is. It's right. an, interesting, an interesting look at human engineered uh, landscape. 
Yeah. And so it was a lot of wetlands, right? It was a lot of wetlands. It was a lot of that. And we, we created, sort of created the islands by building the levees around them and, and all that stuff. So it's, a, it's a, such a super interesting place, right? And, and now you go down there, it's very bucolic. It's very like you go wine tasting, you can ride your bike through it. They do have, a, I don't know if you've done that bike ride through the Delta in October. I've done it a couple of times, the Century uh, Challenge. Um, I don't know if you ride bikes as well as swim, Tim, but <laughs> I'm no uh, Paul Mitchell, but you know, well, and since you bring that up, so you not only run the water education foundation, you also are an open water swimmer. Well, what better hobby to do if you're, you're you work in water, but to actually like swim in it as well. Yeah. I mean, I, I do open water swimming. I'm not, I don't think I'm extreme. There are some people in the water world who are more extreme. Uh, but yeah, I've done, uh, some open water swimming and, um, it's, it's really interesting. I have to say to experience the water from that level. So if you're in Natoma, or if you're in one of the places I like to go is, um, Donner Lake, you know, it's just, you're at eye level, right? Of the watershed. And it's just, it's just really interesting perspective to, to be in that water and looking around at the watershed and the surroundings. Um, yeah. Yeah. I have to ask though, if you're in Donner Lake, are you wearing a wetsuit? Cause that water no. is cold all year. No, I do not wear a wetsuit. You're a polar bear. <laughs> I'm Canadian. Remember I'm from Canada. <laughs> This is true. This is true. That, actually, your true Canadian roots. There's no water too cold to go into. No, there is. Tahoe, one time I did an open water swim in Tahoe a few, few years back, and they said you didn't need a wetsuit. I was one of three people without a wetsuit, and I almost got hypothermia. So, yes, it oh, is wow. possible. But I would say, I mean, you know, we went to Norway and swam in the fjords at 51 degrees, not for too long, not for too long in 51 degree uh, water. But, you you know, you can sort of understand that last scene in Titanic when they just kind of float down. Jack just kind of lets go and floats down because the hypothermia just, it overcomes you. You know, really quick, I want to ask you, though, too, because you have led seminars and that kind of thing all over the world. And I'm really curious, what's your perspective on how other nations see water issues compared to how we manage things here in California? Yeah, that's really interesting because uh, you may have uh, seen that I went to Iran in in, uh, 2016, uh, taught a workshop for journalists covering water and climate change there. And as part of that trip, they actually flew us, which I didn't know. Whenever you do you agree to go to do these things. You never know exactly what you're in for. So you just have to roll with it. So I knew there was a field trip, but I didn't realize we would be going on a plane and flying into central Iran to do a tour of their underground tunnels, which are called canots. Uh, some are 2000 years old. Um, they, they tap the groundwater in the desert and then they kind of flow uh, gravity fed into the cities, to the, to the farms, you're really lucky if your house is built on top of a cannot. So the basement is kind of this place where the water comes in, goes into a jacuzzi like place, then goes out to the next house. And it's just fascinating. Some of these 2000 year old cannot tunnels are still in use. But you find that the water issues are the same 
whenever you have an arid or semi-arid region, right? So we also host an international groundwater conference. Uh, we did one in 2016 where we had people from Spain, from, you know, from Africa, from various countries that are also Australia that are, that are also dealing with some of the same issues as we do. And I will tell you that water people are the same, no matter <laughs> whether it's Australia, Iran, uh, Spain, France, um, uh, it's the same anywhere. But Israel is really known for stretching its water supply, probably more than any other country. It just, they use every single drop. And so there are a lot of times people from California will go to Israel and see what they're doing and how they're doing it. Australia has very similar issues to us because they have the similar terrain. They've got desert, they've got mountains, they've got coastline. Um, Australia is very, very similar to us. So we would like to do a water tour there one year. <laughs> yeah, you know, I've, I've, you know, I might be able to convince Tim to send me on a press junket with you. I think that would work. Be a great, say, Tim. Great I'm going to put you on the spot here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, really, I, we don't want to keep you forever here, but um, and I know it's too late to register for your conference next week, but give folks who might have been fortunate enough to get in before the deadline a little idea of what they're going to what they're going to see and hear uh, during your conference. Yeah. So a lot of people who come to our, our conferences are self-described as as I am, as a self a water nerd or water geek. And so they're going to hear a lot of interesting discussions on some changes in California water. Um, we're going to have a keynote from Anacita Agostinas, who is the tribal policy um, advisor to the Department of Water Resources. She has a really interesting stuff to say, including the fact that, and I don't know if you've heard this yet, she's very much into words. And, and as journalists, we know words matter, right? And so uh, she gives a talk about how not to use the word stakeholder. That's not good for tribes. Don't use the word chief. Don't use all this stuff. So apparently, and what she has told me is that the entire Department of Water Resources took the name chief out of all of its job titles. They're just gone. It's just interesting stuff. So uh, we're they're, we're, they're going to hear a kickoff with just some interesting cerebral talk, right, on tri the tribal perspective and water. Then we'll go into legislative and policy changes. We'll have uh, Natural Resources Secretary Wade Kofoot joining uh, that panel. He's always interesting to hear. And we'll have, you know, because we are an impartial nonprofit, we'll have voices from the ag sector, we'll have voices from the environmental sector, from the um, uh, underrepresented communities, the community water center. Um, so we will have voices from every, everyone. We are like, the Water Education Foundation is like the Switzerland of the California water world. Everybody comes to our table, everybody is welcome. So, and we're really unique in that way, I would say. Um, so looking at the agenda, we also have our a water journalism award that we're, we'll be giving out to a journalist here in California covering water that's named after my predecessor, Rita Schmidt-Sedman, the really good reporter who covers this in depth. We're, the one thing we haven't talked about is uh, Sustainable Groundwater Management Act. That is, you know, that took a heavy lift to get that passed in 2014. And it's, you know, we're looking at the 10 year anniversary next year. And so we're going to kind of have a retrospective on what did it take for California to 
to pass that. Remember, we were the last state in the West to start really seriously regulating groundwater. Even Texas beat us. And, you know, we're usually at the forefront of these types of changes. So we're going to have kind of a retrospective and also kind of what, what's going on now with all of the plans and looking forward to the 10th anniversary. We're going to have our uh, chair of the Colorado River Board of California come and speak to us about what's going on in the basin. J.B. Hamby, he's the chair. He is also a board member of Imperial uh, Irrigation District. And I will have to say, not that I'm taking credit, but he was a graduate of our inaugural Colorado River Water Leaders Program in, uh, in 2022. So we also do uh, water leader programs that bring together young engineers, managers, farmers, environmentalists, and they study a topic uh, for a year. They come up with policy recommendations. They have a mentor. They have a, you know, they go on tours. Uh, it's 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 a great program. And then really we're gonna then then that's when we're gonna start looking at the dams at the end of the day and what's going on with that. Wow, that sounds like a, a very full schedule of really interesting stuff. I mean, if you're in yeah. California water. Sounds like it's going to be the place to be. So uh, yeah. good luck with all of that. That sounds like Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much for coming on on the show today. This was, uh, as always, informative, as, which is what we've come to expect from the Water Education Foundation. A lot of great information on what is happening around California water policy, regula regulatory environments, et cetera, et cetera. Well, thank you. It's been fun. Yeah. Yeah. Best of luck. Take care. Okay. Bye, guys. Hey, everybody. This is Capital Weekly Managing Editor Rich Eisen. Uh, thanks again to Jim Bowles for joining us for uh, our podcast this week. Uh, I'm going solo on what is has become our very favorite uh, section of the show, which is who had the worst week in California politics. The worst week. Worst week. Worst week. I think this week, the the answer to that question is pretty obvious. It is pretty much Governor Gavin Newsom, Attorney General Rob Bonta, and anyone else who is in support of California's ban on assault weapons, assault rifles, because as uh, you may know by now, uh, we have had a ruling come down from U.S. District, District Judge Roger Benitez of San Diego, who ruled that uh, the state's... Uh, almost three-decade-old ban on assault weapons, has no equivalent in early American history and is therefore unconstitutional. Um, essentially, what Benitez ruled was that while there's no question that these guns are used in all kinds of mass killings, um, we don't give enough credit to people using them for self-defense. So in uh, his view... That means, just like the Bowie knife, as he wrote, was commonly carried by citizens and soldiers in the 1800s, assault weapons are dangerous but useful. Well, that is, of course, bad news for, as I noted, Governor Gavin Newsom and uh, Attorney General Rob Bonta. Uh, Bonta, who said weapons of war have no place on California streets. It was a law that had been in California for decades. They, of course, uh, will appeal this ruling to higher courts. Governor Gavin Newsom also criticized the ruling, calling it a love letter uh, to the NRA and to those who would um, 
have these guns be more readily available to anybody who wants them, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Of course, those who support um, people being able to have these kinds of weapons were thrilled. Uh, Governor Gavin Newsom was not, so maybe he's having the worst week. Maybe it's Bonta. I don't know, but I do know Newsom was also quoted as saying. Um, he accused Benitez of being hell-bent on making it more dangerous for our kids to go to school, for families to go to the mall, or attend a place of worship. Those are all direct quotes from Governor Gavin Newsom. So I think it's fair to say he's having a pretty bad week based on that ruling. So there you go. There there might be others, but I, I doubt that there's anybody having a that had a worse time uh, or a worse reaction to that particular ruling. Uh, beneath, may, maybe what we'll see sometime in the future is after Newsom is done debating Ron DeSantis, maybe he can have a, a good one-on-one debate with uh, with uh, Judge Benitez. That might be kind of interesting. But until that happens, this is Rich Eisen. This has been, uh, of course, the Cap Weekly Podcast. Who had the worst week in California politics? Okay. Take care. We'll see you next time. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week. The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations.